All right, go ahead and take your Bibles out. 1 Samuel chapter 17 today. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We are continuing our summer sermon series called Great Stories. And uh, we're looking at these old story, these stories from the Old Testament. Many of them that are familiar stories. And we're trying to see them through new light. Try to understand them in full. What, what, not only what were they in the Bible, but how do we apply them into our own life? And today we come across one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. Uh, well-known not only by Christians, but by non-Christians as well. It's the story of David and Goliath. Uh, Non-Christians would use the phrase, it was the David and Goliath story to talk about an underdog story. And so my hope today is as we look at this, that we'd have fresh eyes. I'm going to begin by retelling us the story. Uh, You can follow along. I'm not going to read it word for word. It's, It's a longer chapter, but from time to time, I'll jump in and read particular verses. But I'm going to tell you the whole story. And then we're going to look at it and try to draw two very important principles. The story begins around 1000 BC. We don't know the exact date, but it was right about 1000 BC, so about 1000 years before Christ, when uh, the man who would eventually become the great King David of the Old Testament, the most important king of the Old Testament, a lot of the stories of the Old Testament revolve around him, but it was when he was just a boy. He was the youngest of a set of brothers. And his three older brothers were off on the front lines of a battle. Uh, It was the time of year when nations went to war. Uh, King Saul was the, the, I almost said the president, he was the king of Israel at the time. And uh, David was just a youth. But his dad sent him to the front lines to go bring some food to his older brothers who were on the front lines of the battle and to just get an update from them, what's going on. So David heads off to the front lines and he finds that the army is camped in the Valley of Elah. Now, you can go to that valley today. It's a remarkable place to go. Uh, I have not been there, but I've looked at the pictures of it. And what it is, is you can see two big hills, almost mountains, with a big valley in between, and a, a, a small spring that's filled with small rocks around the outside of one side of the valley, just as 1 Samuel chapter 17 describes it as. When David arrives, he notices uh, that things are a bit interesting for a battle. The opposing enemy is on one hill on the other side of the valley. His, his army with his brothers are on this side of the valley. And as he gets there, there's one giant man standing in the middle of the valley by himself, taunting and calling out to the army of Israel. Let me read to you the description of him in 1 Samuel 17, 4 to 7. There came out from the camp of the Philistines, that's the enemy army, a champion named Goliath of Gath, Gath is the city, whose height was six cubits and a span, that's roughly over nine feet tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. So his armor is over 100 pounds. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. This was a massive man, over nine feet tall, carrying around with him 100 pounds of armor and weaponry. This is is a fearsome warrior. And David arrives, and, and what Goliath is doing is he's standing in the middle, and for 40 days, as it turns out, Goliath has been coming down into the center of that valley, and he's been calling out the army of Israel, send one man to fight me, said Goliath. 
Send one man. And this was a common way of doing battle in, in those days. If any of you have read any of Homer's epics, like the Iliad or the Odyssey, it's not uncommon for a champion to go out and essentially you're saving the army from all of them dying. Send one, mano y mano, winner take all. Goliath comes out, nine foot nine warrior with a spear like a weaver's beam. And he starts taunting them for 40 days. Will no one fight me? Is there anyone among the army of Israel who will fight me? And we're told in chapter 17, verse 24, it says, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. I don't blame them. If I saw a 10-foot tall warrior that size, I'd be a little afraid as well. Well, David arrives, and David looks to his brothers and he sees what's taking place. And he, you know, he hadn't been there for the last 40 days. He just got there, sent from his dad. He shows up. He's got some food for his brothers. He hears this guy out in the middle of the valley. And he looks at all the men afraid. And he has this great line. He says in verse 26, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's important language. Circumcision was the mark of the covenant. It was the mark of the promises of God and the people in the Old Testament. It defined who they were and defined the promises that God had made to them. He says, who is this man who's outside the covenant of the people of Israel, who's taunting the people of God and that's making all of us afraid? He's defying the army of the living God. Well, the brothers begin to mock him. As soon as they hear their, their little ruddy brother come up here, they, they hear him saying, you know, all this boastful confidence. Oh, look what I would do. They, they, who are you? Go back home. We know what you're doing here. You're just trying to get news about what's going on in the battle. Get out of here, young one. They mock him. But David won't have it. David goes to Saul. Saul's commander, Abner, finds him, brings him over to Saul. And uh, David goes before Saul and says, look, I, I'll go fight him. If no one else will fight him, I'll fight him. You can imagine Saul looks at him and Saul says, you're just a kid. He's been... He's been fighting battles since before you were born. I'm not sending you out to go fight him. But David, just full of confidence, says, no, 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 no. I, 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 God has protected me. I fought off bears. I fought off lions when I was a shepherd. And I'll fight this man as well. The Lord has always protected me, and he won't stop now. 1 Samuel 17, 37, David says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. And so Saul consents. Now, what was going through Saul's mind at this point? You got to imagine this king. This king didn't have the, the wherewithal or the courage to do this himself. And not one man of all his elite army men had the courage to do this. And now this boy comes up. He's kind of got nothing to lose. After 40 days... If anyone's going to do it, we might as well just get the job over with. And there's only one person volunteering for the role, and it's this boy. Might as well let him go. Probably to Saul, it seemed like a suicide mission. He says, look, let me at least put armor on you. So he takes his armor. Saul was a pretty tall man, actually. When we first meet Saul, we find that he was head and shoulders above everybody else. But he has a king's armor. So he takes his armor, he puts it over David. You can just imagine this youth David wearing this oversized armor. And David says, I'm not used to this. I, I, I wouldn't be able to, to do anything with all this armor on me. And so he takes it off. He goes down to the spring that flows on one side of the valley and he gathers for himself five smooth stones. 
puts him in a pouch with his sling. Now, a sling was a common weapon that shepherds in that day would keep on them to keep wolves away. And it was a pretty accurate thing. It was a bit like a bow and arrow. The way you take a sling, you load a rock up in it. It's got two loose straps, and you swing it over your head like this till you could hear it whizzing, and then he'd release one side of it, and the rock would go out. And a a well-trained shepherd could hit a lion from pretty far away with a sling. It's like having a bow and arrow on you. David goes out there, no armor on him, as soon as Philistine sees him, as soon as uh, Goliath sees him walking out there, just this boy with no armor. Verse 43, the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his, his gods. This is a battle of gods right now. It's two men fighting, but, but Goliath is standing with his gods and David has gone out in the name of his god. And we're about to find out which one's stronger. 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47. Listen how David responds. David says to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth might know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly might know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Oh, well, you can imagine that. That made it. Goliath just a little angry. Goliath's armor bearer goes away, and now Goliath is standing there with David. David runs towards Goliath as he's running, takes out his sling, starts whizzing it around like this. Remember, he's covered. He's got a helmet. He's got pads all down him. David releases one shot, and it hits Goliath right underneath the helmet. It sinks right into his forehead. Goliath sinks down onto his knees. This is an interesting posture, what happens at this moment. He sinks down like this and then falls down on his face before David. And as if he's falling down before the living God, David walks over to him. Now, you can imagine the two armies on either side. What just happened? David, to make sure everyone knows what's taking place, takes the sword of Goliath, holds above his head, and cuts off Goliath's head, exactly as he said he would. The Philistines are terrified. They start to run. The Israelites charge after all of them. And it says that for miles around as they chased after them, the dead bodies of the Philistines fell. Israel ended up plundering the camp and the victory was the Lord's. Okay, now what do we learn from this? This is a story in the Old Testament. This is a war story. This is a story of battle. What spiritual testimonies, what spiritual truths can we take of this besides this fascinating and amazing moment in history? Let's first get one thing straight. This is a moment in history. This story took place. We're followers of the living God. We believe that every single word in this, in this book is absolutely true. It records history as it truly happened. This is a moment in history that Christians need to learn from. What happened and how can we apply it into our life? Number one, Jesus is the greater David who has defeated our fiercest enemy. Now, I hope as we've gone through the, this series, this entire summer, you've picked up a theme of my preaching to you. Almost every single week, I come up here and I say, D- David is the greater. David is the greater Joseph. 
David is the greater Moses. Or Jesus is the greater Joseph. Jesus is the greater Moses. And Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater David. How? All through this story, we see the life of Jesus being lived out in what's called types. It's a type. Jesus being the anti-type. He's the fulfillment of what happened. Think of David's life. David was sent by his father, just as Jesus was sent by his father. David was sent by his father to go check on the brothers. Jesus, all throughout the gospel accounts, recorded that his father sent him to go do the work that he was called to. John chapter six, verse 30, or John chapter four, 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. This is common language of Jesus and to accomplish his work. Now, unlike Jesse, Jesse didn't know what his son was getting into. The father knew exactly what he was sending the son to do. He knew the battle his son would go to fight and he sent him anyways. Just like David, Jesus was mocked by his brothers. Remember the story? David gets up there and he, he sees what's taking place and his brothers immediately begin to mock him, saying he's come there for the wrong reasons. They're challenging his motivations. All through Jesus' life, he was mocked. Jesus was mocked by even his own brothers. At one point, his family said, you're out of your mind. During his crucifixion, the Roman guards, they, they, they put a crown of thorns over Jesus' head. They robed him in a, in a purple robe and they did that to mock him. The crown of thorns, they, they took wedges and they, they beat it into his skull until his, his head was bleeding. And the reason they were doing that is he was claiming to be a king. They said, some, some king you are, crown of thorns. He was mocked all the way up to his crucifixion. Even as he was hanging on the cross, Matthew 27, 39 says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Jesus is the greater David. Just like David, Jesus rejected human armor. David got there. Saul said, okay, I know how we can win this battle. Let me put a sword in your hand. Let me load you up with the best armor that we've got, the best that our technology can manufacture. David put it on and said, I'm not going to win this battle using the, the mechanisms of men. I trust in the living God. Jesus, likewise, on Palm Sunday, when he came into Jerusalem the week before he was crucified, they tried to crown him a king like every other king. They tried to establish him with a political power and a political force and an army just like every other king and every other army that's ever walked this earth. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, physical fighting, that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. He fought an entirely different way. His victory was not by the strength of a military. His victory was not by the strength of armor or by swords. His victory was by God. David stood as a champion, as a middleman. Early on in this story, it says that uh, which is, uh, Goliath was a champion. The term's interesting. That's an English translation of the term. And a literal reading of it is middleman or mediator. Goliath was a middleman who stood in the middle, one-on-one. -on -one. I represent everyone who's behind me. You send one to represent everyone that's behind you, and we'll fight this out, and we'll see who wins. Jesus went to battle on behalf of us against our greatest enemy. And he stood in our place with all of us behind him. Make no mistake, all of us have an enemy who's far greater than Goliath. Satan stood before us. He had, he had been the champion of death since Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden. 
Death had reigned with Satan over, overseeing that all the way into the life of Jesus. Every single person ever born had fallen into sin, and every single person ever born was going to face the consequences of sin, which was death. Satan was a far greater enemy than Goliath. Many people walk through life not realizing that's the enemy that's facing them. He's invisible. We don't see it. But he's there. Every temptation, every sin that's led to brokenness, every time that we've lacked godliness in our life and made unwise decisions that have hurt us and hurt others and left us with scars and left others with scars around us, all of it, Satan was over all of it. He was our champion before we knew Jesus and we were standing behind him, gullible as we were, just following, thinking this guy will defend us, even when we didn't know that's what we were doing. But a new champion came, Jesus And he stepped into the ring. He is our middleman. He's our mediator. He's our champion who won the battle against Satan. He went directly to him, and Jesus won a victory that none of us could have ever won. David cut off Goliath's head with his own sword. This is fascinating. David, after the stone had gone into his head, into Goliath's head, took Goliath's own sword and cut off his head with it. The victory came from the very weapon that Goliath intended to kill David with. (laughs) This is precisely what Jesus has done and how he gained the victory. We read in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Let me translate this for you. At the moment when Jesus was on the cross... Satan thought he had gained the greatest victory because he had taken that tool, death, and applied it to the champion, Jesus. He knew exactly who Jesus was, and he took his sword, death, and he applied it to Jesus, and in that moment, Satan thought he had won. Any hope that the people of God had, any hope that this earth had, it was done because he took his sword, death, and he applied it to Christ. But what did Jesus do? Jesus used death. He used Goliath's own sword in able to gain the victory over Satan. Through death, he actually gained victory over death because he resurrected from the grave. See, only Jesus could have ever accomplished this because he was fully God and fully man. Fully man that he could die and yet fully God that he had power over death itself. And in his resurrection, all the power that Satan had to control you and to lead you to death eternally was vanquished forever. Our champion won by using the enemy's own sword on him. This is interesting. David was given a bride by Saul, one of his own daughters. Did you know the church is the bride of Christ? At Christ's victory... The church was established, and Jesus is the great groom, the church being his bride, and he cares for us deeply, like a good husband to his bride. He's tender with us. And just as David was given a bride for victory, Jesus was given a bride for victory over, for his victory, and you are that bride if your faith is in Jesus Christ. And he cares for you. He loves you. You've entered into that marriage. He'll never leave you. There's no mistake you can make big enough that he would leave you alone. He will always be there for you. When David won the victory, songs were sung of him afterwards. We're told in the Psalms that when Jesus ascended to heaven, the angels sang hymns. Who is this that dares to knock on the throne of heaven? The Lord, 
the Lord merciful and mighty. Three times the angels repeated, who is this that dares to knock on the doors of heaven? It's the Lord. They sang hymns to him. The story of David points us to Jesus. The whole thing is an archetype of what Jesus would eventually do for us by dying on the cross. Now, secondly, David exemplifies how we are to battle our own giants. Let me make sure I get this clear. First, David points us to Jesus. This whole story drips in the narrative of what Jesus has accomplished for us. I'm trying to teach you how to read these Old Testament stories. When you read them, we're not only reading what God did in history, but God was busy in history planting seeds of the gospel for us to look back in and say, that's what you were doing. It all pointed to Jesus. It always did. But secondly, we can learn a lot from David, the way he went about defeating Goliath. First, everybody has Goliaths in their life. Everybody has battles. Every Christian experience is different. Every one of your stories, Brent just came up here and shared his own story with you, but we can have every single person in this room come up and share their story of hardships that they face in this life. Some of you have had challenges with your own family that are just heartbreaking. Some of you right now are going through challenges and hardships trying to, how are you gonna pay rent financially? Are you gonna be able to stay in Chicago how, how are you going to handle this situation with your children? What if it grows out of your hands? How are you going to take care of aging parents? Sometimes trials come and they're just formidable. Something tragic happens in your life. And, and what, what you're doing is you're staring up at this Goliath in front of you. And it's just there. And David's, David teaches us something about how followers of God, the God of promise, are supposed to look at Goliaths in their life and what they're supposed to do with it. And it's not what you'd think. He doesn't teach us what you'd think he'd teach us. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not what we take from David's story. If you were at a false church with a false preacher, what the false preacher would be teaching you is a false gospel. He'd say, look to David. And the way that he stood up to his enemy, Jesus is always gonna give you victory over those enemies in this life. Whatever hardship you face, whatever it is, you just have faith and it will go away in Jesus' name. There's an entire movement of that called the Word of Faith movement. And that is not the gospel. David lived under a different covenant than we do. There were different promises that were made to the people of God in the Old Testament that are not exactly the same in exactly the same way that they worked out back then. Around the globe today, on average, 13 faithful followers of Jesus will give their life for their faith a day. And so try telling them that message. You don't have enough faith. Right? You saw Goliath coming. All you needed was more faith. No, that is not the message of this. There's something else we take away from this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22 says, you will be hated for all for my name's sake. This is Jesus. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so the lesson is not how do we overcome enemies and make our enemies go away. That's not what I want to try to teach us today. The people of God under the old covenant, part of their covenant was that they were a nation that if they exhibited faith and held up their end of the covenant relationship, God would give them victory over their enemies. That was part of that covenant. But that covenant's been fulfilled. Jesus has come. And the nation Israel, with those particular covenant promises, has been fulfilled in Christ. Those are not the exact same covenant promises for us in the exact same way. But we have different promises that we hold on to. So the question we should be asking is not how do we get victory over every enemy in this life, but rather how can we exemplify godliness 
and as a result, grow in our devotion and love of God in the midst of Goliath standing in front of us? That's the question Christians should be asking. How do we exemplify godliness with Goliath standing in front of me? How do we grow in our devotion and love of God with Goliath standing? Because if you're like me, what my history has shown is that I have a tendency when, when real big trials and, and challenges come in my life, I have a tendency to let them be what guides my, my view of things. And so the question we need to be asking is, how do we not let that happen? How, how are we guided by God? Two principles, very simple ones, but they're very important. Number one, we must train ourselves to think great and wonderful things about God's promises. We must train ourselves to think great and wonderful things about God's promises. Think about David. David's a young kid. <laughs> but he knows the covenant promises of the God of, of Israel. He knows that God said that if we had faith, that he would deliver us from every enemy. Now, he knows it not just in his head. Every man who was at that battle knew those promises. They were raised in Israel in 1000 B.C., they all heard the promises. They all had the head knowledge of what the promises were. But every one of them was afraid to go put it to the test. No one would go. They all did exactly what we all do. We know it up here, but we don't actually know it here, and we're unwilling to put it to the test with our hands. David didn't just know it here. David David looked, immediately assessed the situation, said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that dares to stand against the armies of the living God? Who is this man outside of the covenant who thinks he's going to defy the promises of our God? Do we not know what the promises are? Is he not more than capable to hold up his end of the bargain? Isn't that who God is? Isn't that who we are? David knew Israel's covenant. And we, like, like David... When we have Goliath standing before us, we need to be the kind of people that open our word, open our Bible, and, and know the promises, not just in our mind, but know them in such a way that it drives our steps. And we behave differently. We live differently. We think differently. People see us going through our challenges, and they just know. They just know that something's different about the way you're facing this. You're believing something different than what I believed when I was going through something similar. That's the people of God. See, when God saved you, if you're a Christian, he changed your nature. It's called regeneration. That's, that's the doctrine of regeneration. He changed your nature. You had a heart that was wicked. You had a heart that did not prioritize God. It was, it was different. It was the way of the world. And in the, under the way of the world, under your old nature, your first instinct was to be afraid of Goliath, to try to find a way to fight Goliath, to try to find stronger armor or, or stronger sword, or to create a, you know, some posse that will come around you so you can fight Goliath together. That was who you were before you knew Jesus. But when you put your faith in Jesus, he changed your nature. You're entirely different. And now your mind and your heart as a believer has a new first instinct. It's the first instinct to believe that God will make good on his promises. That's a different thing. And now the nature of a Christian is someone who's looking at, looking at the promises of God and saying, it's not just up here that I hold this to be true, but I believe it. It's pulsing through my veins in this moment, and I'm going to cling to those promises. Joel Beakey Dear brother, says this, our problem, speaking of the promises of God, our problem then is not so much a lack of faith, but a failure to truly apply the promises so as to depend on them. 
As we read the scriptures and come across a particular promise that directly speaks to our situation, we yield a hearty amen to it. We say amen. I see the promise. I hear the sermon. I know that. Amen. But then we quickly close our minds as we close our Bibles, and we think no more of it, trying once again to live independently from the promises. It's as if we expect the fulfillment of a promise to drop from the sky into our laps simply by knowing and assenting to it. The problem is not the promise. It's our failure to lean and depend on it in meditation, to confer with it and chew on it until we feel the sweetness of it in our mouths. How do we do this well? Well, first of all, you can't, you can't meditate and reflect and believe the promises if you don't know them. You have to be familiar with this book. More, more than just a weekly check-in in a sermon. You, you've got to scour the pages and look for the hope that God has put in here and the promises because on every page you find who God is and who we are and how we're supposed to depend on him and what his promises mean. If you don't know his word and you're not increasing in your familiarity with it, what are you going to hold on to? Isn't this what faith is? Faith is not just believing there is a God. The demons believe that, and they shudder at that belief. Faith is believing the covenant promises of the God of the Bible. That's what faith is, and then putting it into practice when it's really hard. If you don't know the Bible, if you don't know the promises, what are you clinging on to, that there is a God? The demons believe that, and they shudder, says the book of James. Second, let me give you some examples. There's a wonderful Puritan author named William Spurstow. And uh, he, he writes a couple examples of how we can do this well. And, and he writes this. He says, are, are you in despair over your own sin? Maybe you're coming in here today, and this, you can relate to this. You're thinking of your own sin. You're thinking of what you've done this last week, and you, you feel maybe, like Brent described, he felt like a, a little ashamed over some of your sin before. And, and you're, what, what promises do I have to Scripture? I see my sin. I know my sin. I'm stuck in cycles of sin. I'm not breaking them. What promises do I have that God still loves me in Christ today? He says, turn to Exodus 34, where we read this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. See, you take those words, you chew on them, you hold them, you believe them. You let them linger in your heart until you know that there is no more shame in Christ Jesus because he went to the cross for your sin. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You hold on to those promises until you believe them. You go on a prayer walk with it and you just recite that over and over and over again. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Memorize it till it's locked in your mind. Until you actually believe it. Until the next time Satan says your sin is too great, is too consistent. You say, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He will forgive for iniquity and transgression and sin. That's my God, Satan, not you. See, until you linger on those promises, you haven't applied them yet. Are you in a hopeless situation that you can't see your way through? Turn to Isaiah 43, verse two. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. See, how many times we read that verse, and you, know, you just read it like you read any other book. Go on, great, go on with our day, get busy. There's, there's, there's things to do. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. What did God say? When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. I need that. And I need to cling to it. I need to hold it. And I need to teach myself in my heart to hold that as an anchor. So that when Goliath is in front of me, 
I don't start looking for ways to use my muscle to get around him, but I cling to that promise like it's my life. That's what I need. That's a Christian. So let me ask you to evaluate yourself right now. Have we been trained in this at all? Sometimes there are moments in our, in our journey, I found this, there's moments in my walking with Jesus where I suddenly realize I'm, I'm way further towards the beginning end of my journey of faith than I am towards the more mature journey part of my faith. I look at some of the saints of old who were pastors and I just say, wow, they, I have a lot to learn. Sometimes we, we, we get a big head and we think, I already know, I know these things. I, I don't need to apply them again. No, wait a second, wait a second. Do you live this way? Go back to the last trial you were in. Maybe you're in one right now. Have you been clinging to the promises of God? That's what faith is. Do you have verses that are, are so meaningful to you that you, you couldn't breathe without those? That's a sign of a mature follower of Jesus. And if that's not you today, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. And you say, Jesus, I've been trusting in armor that Saul wanted to give me. And I don't want to do that anymore. Goliath's in front of me. I want to learn what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus and cling to the promises. His promises are great. So number one, we need to train ourselves to think great and wonderful things about God's promises, but that's not it. Then we need to train ourselves to think great and wonderful things about God. In David's story, it's interesting. I encourage you, go home, read 1 Samuel, 17, 1 Samuel chapter 17 on your own in one sitting. And I want you to mark out all the words and all the, the sentences that David says. Over and over again, when he, whenever he speaks of David, or whenever David speaks of Goliath, it's not in any fearful way. He recognizes that Goliath is there, but it's always in a, like a demeaning way. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Who's this one that dares to defy the armies of the living God? But I count nine times that he describes his God in this text. Nine of them. He describes him as Yahweh, the personal name of God, personal relationship, two times at least. He describes as the armies of the living God, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. It's interesting. Most people, when we're standing before a trial, all we can see is the trial. All we can see is is Goliath standing before us, and it shades everything about us. That's what we think about before we go to bed, if we can fall asleep at night. We wake up in the middle of the night worried about it. Goliath is there. Goliath. We, when we wake up in the morning, first thing on our mind, we're worried about it. Even when we go to prayer, it's the only thing we're praying about because it's consuming us. We can't get our, our work done at work. Why? Because it's, it's just Goliath is there. And can I tell you, when there's a 10-foot tall man standing in front of you, that's not unnatural to just be consumed by the 10-foot guy that wants to kill you. That's what a natural man would do. But we're not natural men and women, Christian. You have been given a new heart. You've been given a new birth in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, you've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave his life for you. Right? You are new. And so this is what David did. David wasn't consumed by Goliath. And he also didn't just pretend that Goliath wasn't there. David had to go to battle. You know what he was consumed with? How big and magnificent his God was. And knowing how extraordinary his God was, he looked at Goliath and realized that he was puny. <laughs> He's just a little guy standing before my God. 
He has nothing. Who is this one that dares to defy the living God? See, David, rather than fixating his heart and mind on Goliath, fixated his heart and mind on the wonder of God, the God of covenant, the God of Israel's armies, the God who loves you, the God who will provide for you. And he was so overwhelmed by it that all of a sudden Goliath was put in perspective. See, we have our trials that we're going through and these hardships and, and they just, they overwhelm us. And you, have, you need to look back on, on how you've been doing this. Have you been allowing the fullness of Christ to permeate your heart? Think of Ephesians. Ephesians says it this way. It says Ephesians chapter three, verse 19. Paul's praying for them. He says that he wants them to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Linger on that for a second. Paul wants them to be filled with the fullness of God all of the character of God, all of the attributes of God. He wants that to go so deep into their hearts that it's just radiating on them. They know his infinity. They know his eternality. They know his justice. They know his righteousness. They know his love. They know his fatherly affection. They know the filling of the Holy Spirit. They know that he is a good intercessor, a mediator for them. And that's just, that's the fullness of God living in them. This doesn't make Goliath go away, but it puts Goliath in perspective. We need, to, we need to allow the reality of the magnificence of God, the tenderness of our heavenly father, the sweetness of the gospel of grace, the preciousness of our adoption into God's family. Linger on that for a minute. You've been adopted into the family of God. The beauty of his overwhelming love for you that will extend through all eternity. That's his love for you. Allow all of those things to be bigger in your life than Goliath to consume your heart and your mind until you believe it. Let me ask you again. Is that the pattern of your life? When you go trials, evaluate yourself, Christian. We need, a, we need a better habit of evaluating ourselves. When you go through hardship, if you're in hardship now, is that what you do? Are you consumed by the bigness of your God and it puts it in perspective or, or does the trial become the thing that's overwhelming you all the time? If that's you, here's what you need to do. Repent. It's, it's, it's the great tool God has given us. You repent of that. God, I'm sorry for letting Goliath look like he was bigger than you. This is not the promise that he's going away. Life will be difficult. Jesus promised there will be struggles and worries and hardships in this life, but he promised he'd be bigger than them all. And now evaluate yourself. You repent, and then you say, Jesus, form this in me. Teach me to be the kind of person that looks to the word of God, knows who you are, and is so saturated by the bigness of my God that the next time I go through a trial, I'm overwhelmed by you and not by the trial. That's that's what you want to walk away with today from. That's exactly what David exemplifies for us. Let me close with one more invitation. Some of you in this room are not yet followers of Christ. And I want you to see the hope in this passage. If you're in this room right now and you're not truly a follower of Jesus, someone who said, I, I'm, I'm done with living a life of sin. I trust that Jesus went to the cross on my behalf to forgive me of all my sin, that his blood is what it cost for the depravity of my sin. And I trust in him and his death and his resurrection for new life. If you've never done that, everything I've just described cannot be accomplished. The best you have is what the natural world offers you. And that is to just try to muscle your way through. But can I tell you this? You might be young and fit right now, but there will come a day when your muscle will not be able to get through Goliath. Because death faces all of us.
And some trials come much larger than that far before death arrives at our doorstep. You need a champion who's gone before you and has paved the way for you to have life to the full. And his name is Jesus. There is no other champion. And you are invited to believe in him today. And if you believe in him today, what I just described can be yours. It can be yours today. You can have a new hope filled with the promises of God. And this book that maybe you thought was some ancient relic to be thrown in the garbage can be yours to hold on to. God invites you to that today if you only believe in Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for the story of David and Goliath. God, I pray that you would form in us right now some principles that would be formed in our heart and our mind, that we would not walk away from here just the same old, same old, that you'd form something new, that we'd be those who truly evaluate our own souls, and wherever there's weakness, that you would make it into a strength, wherever there's a lack of faith, that you would form something new today, that a year from now, two years from now, we would not go through trials the same way. Lord, I pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.